Welcome to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to the Century Foundation's International Affairs Podcast. And today I'm joined by Sam Heller, an independent researcher, usually based in Beirut. He's stateside right now. Uh, and he's coming on to talk about hunger in Syria, uh, about which he has just authored an enormous in-depth report. Sam, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, and then for additionally uh, grappling with my enormous in-depth report. Well, it was a pleasure to edit, uh, and uh, really a lot of uh, both frightening, but also really complicated findings you have. Um, and and I think that's where I, I want to start, uh, which is what, uh, tell us a bit about what it is the state of emergency right now uh, for Syrians and their food supply. Yeah, well, I mean, it is a... Uh things are pretty dire. Um, I think that what really got everyone's attention was uh, in February when um, the World Food Program uh, warned that uh, 12.4 million Syrians inside the country, uh, or almost 60% of the the country's uh, population, uh, are food insecure, um, which means that they they lack... uh, secure access to safe and nutritious food. Um, That is an increase of 57% over the previous year. Um, It also includes uh, 1.3 million Syrians who are uh, severely food insecure, uh, which means that they, uh, they cannot survive without food aid. Uh, There's another 1.8 million that are, uh, at risk of falling into severe food insecurity. So this, of course, these numbers sound very alarming and they sound like pretty terrible lived experiences uh, are behind them. Can you tell us a a bit about this with an eye towards explaining to our listeners what what this actually means for for people? Like, so, uh, because when I hear this bureaucratic language, I'm not sure whether it means uh, whether uh, the food insecure insecurity you're talking about means someone is picking up a food packet, but but therefore once they get the packet, they're essentially doing fine. Or does it mean that people are, for example, worrying month to month whether they'll have enough food uh, to feed themselves and their kids? Or are people falling below the amount of calories they're supposed to have? Or are people giving up uh, uh, protein in their diets? Can you tell us a bit about what what this means for for how people live? Yeah, I mean, I know that. It's, so this can be a little bit jargony, uh, and then so apologies, you know, for this this use of of food insecurity, et cetera. I mean, some of this language can be kind of uh, antiseptic, um, but you know, but basically, it just means that these people are, you know, they are struggling to eat, right, to feed themselves, to feed their families. Um, the uh, so uh, let's see, so. WFP, um, that's the world food program. Sorry. The world food program, um, you know, per the surveys that they have done, uh, you know, that they're finding that, uh, nine of 10 respondents have, uh, have employed, um, what they call food based coping mechanisms, uh, which includes, you know, uh, almost half of survey respondents, um, from families in which uh, adults have reduced their own food com- uh, consumption in order to provide for their children. Seven of 10 
uh, of, you know, these respondents uh, report uh, uh, buying food. Um, you know, and these are ways that, you know, these people are getting by, uh, albeit temporarily, right? But I mean, they are not, um, they're not sustainable. And then they are, uh, you know, they are putting huge numbers of Syrians at risk. Um, I think that uh, the estimates are that uh, I think 600,000 uh, children nationally are malnourished. So this, so this is an enormous, this is an enormous human crisis and it comes after, after 10 years of war. Uh, and, and I guess what, uh, you know, when I read also, when I read your, your report, which has like a really colossal amount of, of granular research in it, uh, it's, it's striking that, you know, this is a country where things have already been bad for a long time because of the war. And in the last year, you're showing something that's gotten markedly worse. And we're talking about a relatively wealthy, relatively modernized country where a decade ago it would be unthinkable uh, to to hear about uh, even poor families going hungry. That the you know whatever whatever was terrible about governance uh, uh, in Syria in the uh, pre-war decades, it was not a place where where people were were not able to eat uh, or keep their their kids sort of at minimal standards of, of nutrition. Uh, and uh, and I think one of the things that I'd like your your work on this issue to do is break through a little bit of that din of oh well things in Syria have been bad for so long. What's new here? Uh, and I think you you have something to say uh, that is alarming. And new. I mean, I think that the the Syria that you're describing uh, is a Syria of the past, right? A you know Syria as this kind of uh, middle in- income country. I mean, this is uh, now after a uh, after a decade of war. Uh, this is a country in which ninety percent of the population uh, is below the poverty line. Uh, 60 to 65 percent of the country uh, lives in extreme poverty um, of like a, a estimated population of about 21 uh, million people, uh, like an estimated uh, 6.7 million Syrians are displaced internally uh, and are thus, you know, exceptionally vulnerable. Um so that is just kind of the, the scene nationally. But then as for why things are, you know, are have suddenly become uh, worse in a, you know, in a clear and new way, um, that really seems, seems to return to uh, October 2019. So prior to that, you had a, you know, a country that was uh, depleted and destroyed economically, whose uh, infrastructure uh, and uh, human capital had been, uh, you know, had been laid waste uh, by this, um, you know, by years of of war. Um, But things nonetheless seemed kind of bad, but stable. Uh, They took a much sharper turn for the worse, though, uh, in late 2019, when the, uh, the kind of these mass uh, mass demonstrations in Lebanon uh, helped to catalyze 
um, sort of this long brewing uh, crisis in Lebanon's banking system. And then facing this, uh, you know, this fatal crisis of confidence, uh, Lebanon's banks uh, effectively, uh, you know, they uh, effectively confiscated uh, many of their depositors' assets. Um, you had this huge disappearance of liquidity from the Lebanese banking system, uh, and uh, Lebanon sort of seized up uh, as a as a conduit for trade. What that meant for Syria, um, you know, was that uh, as became very apparent, uh, you know, as Lebanon's crisis uh, further metastasized. Uh, was that Lebanon had been hugely important for a uh, a heavily sanctioned Syria, uh, you know, as a uh, uh, a conduit, a uh, you know, a channel uh, for trade. So essentially, uh, I mean, this is something that I think people who haven't experienced firsthand how closely intertwined these two countries are could come as a shock. Uh, you're you're saying, if I understand you correctly, that uh Lebanon Lebanon enabled Syria one to get around sanctions but even more simply for for legal unsanctioned purchases of of, of, of food and imported wheat other other staples uh, that it just was much more logistically feasible to to buy food and bring it through Lebanon whether because of the banks or because of the ports and that once Lebanon went into free fall that entire, pathway of both money and and food uh got shut down yeah i mean this uh you know i mean suddenly you just had lebanon was no longer available as this type of free zone uh for international trade for syria uh you know syrian uh, businesses state entities to kind of secure uh their necessary uh imports and additionally you know many of the uh like the private businessmen, the intermediaries who had been, you know, who, who had been conducting this business there, uh, I mean, by, you know, many estimates, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars, uh, evaporated. Right. So, so all these were gone. Syrian assets that had been parked in, in Lebanese banks and these were basically just stolen by, by the Lebanese banks. Yeah. Um, you know, as they crooks on two crooks, know, yeah, as they, you know, as they additionally dispossessed uh, huge numbers of Lebanese inside the country and, diaspora, and uh, you know, in the diaspora. Um, you know, so this uh, provoked a real crisis. Uh, and then additionally, as the Lebanon's currency started to plummet after, you know, long years of, uh, um, you know, of this sort of fixed peg, this... Uh, uh, fixed exchange rate with the U.S. dollar. Um, as that started to fall, then the uh, then serious currency fell with it. Uh, and then, additionally, you know, all of this roughly coincided with uh, with the coronavirus pandemic, uh, and then its impact on the global economy, uh, on um, international trade. Yeah, and so it was really kind of a perfect storm uh, that hit Syria in 2020. Um, what it meant, you know, was that uh, 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 
necessary imports, you know, became uh, much more complicated and expensive to secure. Uh, the 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 value of uh, serious currency uh, dipped precipitously. Uh, the, just the the volatility uh, volatility of it uh, seems to have posed an obstacle for uh, for imports. Uh, you know, it it apparently it is. Uh, you know, it's not easy to to contract for things when you know when the the currency is changing uh, week to week or day to day, right? Uh, and then when it takes time to actually deliver goods or services. Um, and the purchasing power of uh, Syrian civilians, uh, you know, many of whom, uh, you know, earn lira-denominated salaries um, that, you know, have not changed, uh, it collapsed. They're essentially being paid an amount of money that's worthless that that that, that can no longer buy a, a sack of bread. You've got uh, I've seen it called an income deficit. Um, you know, but basically you've arrived at a situation now where a uh, a uh, what humanitarians, what the UN system calls a a standard reference food basket. Uh, you know, which is enough to kind of minimally food uh, feed a family of five for a month uh so that costs uh roughly 177,000 lira syrian lira right the average uh monthly income of a family nationwide is uh 148 roughly thousand lira right that gap is not you know that that gap is uh means that people can't eat that's parents skipping uh skipping meals or skipping proteins in order to give them to their kids or people eating alternate meals and these kinds of coping strategies that we don't expect yeah. uh people to have to do in uh in viable states yeah i mean so it's it seems desperate i mean i you know i started uh so i started following this uh kind of more closely uh at the end of 2019, start of 2020, you know, when I started having people warn me that like, oh, you know, conditions inside the country are becoming genuinely desperate, right? I mean, that people are going hungry uh, and that it is extreme. Uh, I mean, now this has, you know, I think these humanitarians, the uh, WFP and others, you know, they have really kind of uh, attempted to draw attention to this. Uh, and so I've with this report, you know, the, the idea was basically to, you know, with the knowledge that like, okay, this seems very bad, um, to just sort of work backwards from there and to, to identify what was causing this right among the many and interrelated causal drivers of it, uh, you know, and then hopefully to see if there was, you know, something that could be done, uh, because it is disturbing. We'll take a, a short break. And when we come back, we will uh, get into what, what is, uh, what is to be done, what can be done. We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written, at least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, 
we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's international affairs podcast. And today I'm talking with Sam Heller about hunger in Syria. Now, before the break, uh, Sam was was explaining to us in, in in a lot of detail how this crisis came to pass and how the how these sort of long long running slow burning crises, war, international isolation, sanctions, uh, dictatorial mismanagement by the Assad government, um, and the economic collapse of, of Lebanon, among other things, uh, banded together in the tenth year roughly, or the, I guess, starting in the ninth year of the Syrian war to start creating widespread uh, hunger, food insecurity, people not having enough to eat, not having enough money to get what they need to eat and feed their families. Uh, and uh, and now I want to turn uh, your attention, Sam, to something that you, again, spend a lot of time on uh, in, your, in your research and your recommendations, which is what, um, what can the West specifically, because that's who you're addressing, what can the West do uh, to, to help uh, stop more Syrians from going hungry? And what can they do while being mindful of uh, their limited powers of action and also of their relatively limited uh, fault here, uh, given that the the ultimate culprit uh, for for uh, much of this, including the hunger, uh, is the person who remains the recently reelected dictator of Syria, Bashar al-Assad. And I mean, first, you know, I should additionally note that, I mean, even the, uh, even the sort of kind of the overview of the causes that we've given here is only partial because there are so many more that contributed to this. Uh, it's part of why the problem is uh, so complex and difficult. Uh, it's part of why, uh, you know, I ended up giving you a draft that was like maybe a little bit too long. Um, <laughs> 15,000 words, maybe. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, you know, I mean, that's what happens when you, you know, when you, again, identify, okay, the problem with food security and then work backwards from there to figure out what is feeding into it. And it turns out, you know, the, the answers are many. Um, so in addition to, you know, this kind of just the country's economic collapse uh, and what that has done to, um, to ordinary Syrians purchasing power and their ability to support themselves and their own families. Um, so that is, uh, you have that, but then you have additionally had kind of major, uh, disruptions to the supply of both wheat, uh, and oil, uh, wheat, which is, uh, vital for, uh, for producing bread, uh, which is the kind of rock bottom staple of, uh, of Syrians diet, um, and which, uh, you know, as other foodstuffs, uh, become unaffordable, uh, Syrians have relied on even more both for food. And then it, you know, it's additionally been kind of substituted for some, uh, you know, other goods like, uh, like animal feed, uh, and then oil, uh, oil fuel. Um, this is something that I, I don't think is, typically is always thought of in these terms. Um, but it is, you know, another thing that is a, uh, it is a food security issue because, uh, the scarcity of oil in Syria 
is felt all through the economy, right? It affects, uh, uh, you know, Syrians' ability to uh, to transport and to safely store food. It affects farmers uh, when they cannot uh, irrigate their crops or, you know, operate their uh, their tractors. Um, when it costs more to, uh, let's see, you know, it uh, it affects Syrians' uh, ability to, uh, you know, to uh, to afford transport from their homes to uh, to local markets uh, or to their workplaces and to earn uh, to support their families, right? So this is something that just radiates all through the economy. Um, and you just had a combination of of all these things. The thing, though, is that, you know, I mean, uh, so I wrote this paper with uh, with American and Western policymakers in mind, right? They are the audience. They are, you know, they are, uh, their policies uh, are not the uh, sole or even main cause necessarily of what is happening here. There are things, you know, for Syrians' benefit that others should also do, right? There are things that Damascus uh, should undertake, uh, you know, that some of Syria's uh, uh, allies should do, including Russia and Iran. But with this paper, I thought that I was best able to uh, to address this uh, particular Western audience. So I, you know, attempted to identify uh, which of these causes presented opportunities for Western policy interventions, right? Where are there, you know, kind of points of entry here? You know, there are less than I hoped. Uh, and so I hope that, you know, people aren't uh, uh, afflicted by too much of a, you know, a sense of kind of anticlimax when they arrive at the, um, at the uh, kind of latter part of this paper. That includes recommendations, just because you know some of these some of these issues that Syria is facing just are not within the West's power to resolve. I I found your work on this uh, you know refreshing, even if you know the circumstances are awful, um, and uh, you know this is this is a sort of the opposite of solutionism, right? So solutionism is the uh, uh, uniquely American affliction that we believe that all all the world's problems can be solved. And if we if we really want to, we can do it, you know, we can do anything for anybody anywhere. Um, and uh, there's a sort of uh, healthy growing body of, of policy work that says like, hey, without being defeatist, we can be realistic about crises out there that some some of them don't have any solution at all, um, and and some of them have no solution that we can uh, engender. Um, and if we accept that, um, we have to get rid of ridiculous, you know, Pollyanna prescribing. There's still people bouncing around Washington who seem to think that if if the U.S. sends the right mix of, of military. Uh, personnel to Syria, we can turn Syria into a peaceful and and and, and stable country. Um, and you know that is completely out of the bounds of, of reality. It's not going to happen. And and of course we know that if it were, it wouldn't create a solution. Uh, but it sort of eliminates the need for a more real conversation about okay, well in the in the universe of things that are actually possible, 
what is worth doing and why. Um, and and that's why I found your your work here really interesting because you're saying, hey, we can't we can't actually solve the problem of, of hunger in Syria. We in the West, uh, but there are governments in the West, including in the the United States, that are willing to try and do uh, the right thing if it improves uh, certain um, quality of life issues for for innocent civilians. And, uh, and we might be willing to do those things for their own merits, knowing that these are incremental improvements, right? I mean, if we, the things you're suggesting, which, which, uh, I hope you, you have a way of, of, of talking about in fewer than 10,000 words, um, you know, th- these things are about, you know, uh, uh, improving the supply of food to some subset of the population, alleviating some amount of hunger among some people. Um, and, and again, like there are, I guess, absolutists who would say, like, if you can't solve the whole crisis, don't bother. Uh, who would say, or who would say, this is very marginal because you're not ending the problem. And, and you're saying, well, this is what's in our power, and it's, and it's, it's, it's its own public good to say, you know, the U.S. could do actions, you know, one through five, and uh, and then say that ten thousand food insecure Syrians uh, stop being food insecure, or a hundred thousand people who were skipping meals got to have the, you know full amount of calories per day. But I mean, I don't, you know, presume to have a kind of a monopoly over solutions. Yeah. But certainly if you're out there proposing, you know, expansive, big things um, that are not grounded in a kind of a more real understanding of uh, the U.S. and the Western uh, role, um, you know, of these countries' real agency, uh, then that's just kind of bad analysis, right? I mean, you got to, and then that is kind of the that is the implicit um, thinking behind uh, the earlier part of the paper, you know, in which I uh, you know attempt to kind of to uh, to lay out these various causal factors uh, and to uh, you know and the ways in which they interact, right? Because you know some of them uh, some of them involve the West, some of them do not, uh, and I think that any sort of uh, prescriptive element necessarily has to be kind of premised on that understanding. So let's get Um, into those recommendations. We've got about five minutes. So let's, you know, tell us what, you know, what the West or the U S specifically can do um, and, and what the objections to that are by people who are concerned about somehow enabling Assad as a result of helping the people that he primarily is, is keeping hungry. Well, I mean, so, so like what the West cannot do. I mean, so if the, you know, if Damascus, uh, so Wait, the first, I asked you what I mean, they the can West, do and you're going to tell me what they cannot do. Yeah. I mean, just for <laughs> kind of the purposes of clarity here, the well, pain of the because, realist. Sorry. I mean, you know, but like if the, if so much of this is just the, the kind of state of exhaustion of the Syrian economy, like the West cannot float the Syrian economy, right? If Damascus cannot afford uh, you know, if it lacks the the hard currency to purchase uh, imports of wheat from abroad, you know, then that is not something that the West can obviously fix, right? I mean, they're not going to pay into the Syrian treasury. Uh, they're not going to procure, uh, you know, Syria's wheat needs. Um, even the stuff that they are, that the West is doing now, um, you know, it's, con- it's leading contribution to uh, humanitarian aid in the country is, 
insufficient to meet this need, these needs, you know, not because it is not, uh, you know, substantial and generous, but just because it's just the, the needs too much. It's huge. Um, so the entry points that I saw for, for the West in this respect, um, are largely, um, they largely pertain to, uh, to aid and to sanctions policy. Um, so on aid, um, you know, with the knowledge that, you know, any amount and type of aid will not be enough to, you know, to meet all of the humanitarian need in Syria. Uh, I thought it made sense to remove a, uh, a political condition that has been in place. Um, one that, you know, that the United States and France in particular, uh, have emphasized, um, that has, uh, kept aid largely to, uh, emergency aid, um, and then not, uh, what is what is often called the uh, early recovery or resi- uh, or resilience uh, assistance? So that's aid that has uh, that is meant to sustainably reduce uh, humanitarian need, not just you know meet this existing insurmountable uh, need. Um, so it seems worthwhile to permit that. I think that it's something that humanitarians have you know have been saying just makes programmatic sense um and it could notionally you know it could uh if not reduce the overall humanitarian need maybe at least slow its growth right and so this is things that would help syrians feed themselves um so assistance for uh, uh for livelihoods for agriculture um you know in ways that uh kind of diverge from basically just handouts um, so that is one element of it. Additionally, uh, you know, and our, uh, colleague, uh, Aaron, um, Aaron Lund has written about this. Um, it is very important for, uh, the U S, uh, and others to push for the renewal of, uh, the UN's, uh, cross-border, uh, humanitarian aid mandate. And that's uh, something that the Russians up. have been have been the sticking point on, right? The U.S. has consistently advocated for this, and the Russians have been uh, reluctantly, or let's say theatrically, uh, making last minute agreements to let this happen every every year. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, so you know, I originally wrote about this for the Century Foundation in 2017 uh, when it first looked like it was going to be uh, to be struck. It is an exceptional arrangement. Um, you know, one that permits uh, UN agencies uh, to to be involved in cross-border humanitarian aid uh, with only, you know, without the permission of the Syrian government. Um, it's something that has been kind of uh, reduced, the scope of it since then, but it still persists. Uh, uh, it still, you know, applies to a, uh, uh, to a single border crossing with Turkey uh, in Syria's northwest that just seems really vital uh, for ensuring that the huge numbers of uh, uh, vulnerable and displaced people in that area continue to eat. Um, So this, I mean, that is uh, securing its renewal. Uh, I mean, given just kind of the organization of the UN Security Council, 
uh, and the ability of any uh, of its permanent members to, you know, to, to veto, um, then that is something that requires, uh, you know, arriving at, at, at some sort of agreement with the Russians. Um, so I'm hoping that, uh, I know that this is uh, a priority currently uh, of the uh, U.S. and the Biden administration, and I'm hoping that they'll be able to achieve that. And one one last thing that you, one, one other thing you say in, in in the report, which I also found intriguing, was the the ways in which the U.S. could uh, essentially led up on their scrutiny of certain kinds of shipping transactions in a way that would make it easier for wheat deliveries uh, to come into Syria. Um, but I guess I guess all this leads me to what I think I want to make our final our final question, uh, which is when when I think about all this in its totality, on the one hand, I'm very persuaded by your argument that uh, you know hunger, is bad and the US in particular and all Western countries should do what they can to uh, to help hungry people. Uh, if, if there are things that, that we can do, we just should do them as a, as a public good, as a global good on, uh, in, in the global commons that we all share. And on the other hand, I can't help but think as I, as I read through all this and think through all this, that we're here because of Assad and Russia and and Iran, we didn't do this. In fact, in fact, we have we have been incredibly, uh, you know, we've spent a lot of money on humanitarian aid for Syrians who've been who've been hurt by by these forces. Um, and not to say that the U.S. is is blameless in the Syria catastrophe, but it's absolutely not a, a central driver of it. Um, and and so to think that we're somehow going to you know, spend, uh, uh, let's say, spend capital with Russia, with whom we're already embroiled in many other disputes, to try and convince them to not be completely evil with respect to hungry Syrian civilians. It sort of beggars the mind that that the that the central malefactors are are doing nothing, uh, and in fact are are causing this this crisis to be much deeper and much more painful for for people than it, than it than it would otherwise be um and uh and it makes me feel sort of uh you know like there, there's somehow a misplaced um you know and i get what you're doing here you're saying you're you're saying here's what the people who are willing to listen and try and do the right thing can do you're not saying it's their fault um but just when i take a step back i think Good God! Like how how can this make how can this make any sense? Uh, given that for so much with so much less effort, these other actors could help so many more people. Well, I mean, I would say that uh, you know, I mean, I think that the uh, you can assign relative uh, blame for what has happened, but I don't think that that necessarily exonerates the U.S. or the West. I mean, we were, uh, you know, kind of overtly and covertly participants in this conflict. Um, you know, if you just look at the, uh, the destruction, the physical destruction of Syria, uh, you know, people will frequently point to, uh, uh, to Damascus's kind of devastating scorched earth, uh, bombing of areas that fell under rebel control, but then, they are not the only country that kind of bombed Syria into smithereens, right? Like who bombed Raqqa, right? It's not just them. Uh, you know, and then uh, it was, uh, you know, it was the, the U.S. and others. I guess there are still, you know, limitations on the extent to which they can uh, acknowledge this, 
but you know they they did a lot to uh, to fuel and to energize the uh, uh, the insurgency that was you know fighting and losing against uh, Damascus you know at huge uh, hum- human cost um, and uh, you know and then even as uh, these countries were contributing humanitarian aid they were you know they were levying these uh, these sanctions um, which have a uh, have substantial, collateral damage for the civilian population that is frequently not uh not acknowledged um you know sometimes it can be kind of downplayed uh or you know deflected uh in favor of other uh other arguments sometimes it is just denied uh outright so you know i mean so we have uh, we have and we are exacerbating this problem right and I think that's so. I would say that we should, to the extent possible, stop doing that, and we should, you know, and then we should seek for ways to. I mean, if not improve conditions uh, for Syrian civilians, uh, then at least stop making them worse. I think that's a compelling framework. I mean, this is a do a do less harm uh, approach, and it's one. I, I mean, I, I also find it very. Uh, 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 compelling and, and inconvenient for a lot of the hawks on U.S. Syria policy because, uh, you know, s- sanctions do cause a lot of harm to to the people they're supposed to help. Uh, and that's, that's thorny because especially sanctions like the Caesar sanctions, which were largely backed by a, I think, you know, honorable and well-meaning group of, of, of opponents of Assad and supporters of, of, Syrian rights, um, and, and yet, it, in this complicated, uh, in this complicated setup, those sanctions and and a whole other web of sanctions that we've we've put for again understandable reasons over the years uh, uh, seem to be having several perverse unintended effects. Uh, and this is something that 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 I think it's politically really hard to unwind because no no US president is going to be interested in in taking the uh taking the political hit of lifting sanctions against noxious uh regimes or against regimes that that are strategic uh, uh rivals or, or or problems for the United States but it it nonetheless from a from a humanitarian and even just from a power politics perspective these sanctions don't accomplish what they're meant to um and often cause a great deal of harm. Um, and that is, you know, and, and, and they are politically convenient because they allow the U S to be seen as doing something about an otherwise, you know, unsolvable problem like Assad or, or the persistence of Iran's, uh, posture in the region. And so we end up having more and more sanctions over time because it's like, it's a thing we can do, uh, even if it's not a right thing to do. Uh, and and your your work on this really shows what what the costs of this can be, um, and also what the costs of, of changing course can be. Um, it's it's you know no none of these paths are, are easy or uh, politically obviously politically advantageous. Well, the I mean you know if I can add to that, I mean so I think that in the in the debate over uh, things like sanctions, I mean, Syria can can get brought up less than some other cases like Venezuela or Iran. Um, and I think that that is, uh, I mean, part of that is because of Syria's fragmented geography. 
Uh, I mean, the fact that, you know, Damascus does not control the entirety of the country, um, that it is, you know, that there isn't, you know, an ongoing uh, a, a civil war, even if it has kind of cooled off laterally, um, that that is a, a live conflict in Syria. And additionally, just, you know, the, the, the total, um, you know, like the, the total, the, the toxicity, right, the radioactivity of uh, the Syrian regime, right? It is uh, entirely unsympathetic. But what I would say is, you know, I mean, at this point, if interested outsiders are concerned with the Syrian people, um, then at this point, a, uh, a majority of Syrians inside the country uh, exist under uh, the Syrian regime's control. Right in these areas, they depend for their you know welfare, their survival, uh, on the um, the distributive apparatus of a state uh, over which control is monopolized by Damascus. You know, and uh, that includes you know not just you know if you want to kind of pick favorite areas, that includes uh, not just uh, you know. Uh, areas seen as loyalist that remained under Damascus's control throughout and includes also, you know, the areas in which the West was substantially invested, uh, you know, in which it supported the opposition, such as, uh, um, such as, uh, the country's Southwest, right. They are suffering as are, you know, Syrians in, uh, in Damascus or Tartus. Um, and I would say that, you know, one thing, uh, you know, one thing we try to do in the paper is to kind of to pick apart to or, you know to identify the ways in which the different zones of control are uh, across the country are connected to each other, uh, and then how that affects the drivers of food insecurity. And one thing you see is that there are different degrees of interconnection uh, of how much these areas are uh, uh, are affected by you know by pressures that are in large part aimed at Damascus and the, you know, regime controlled state, but they are also affected, you know, that this, uh, this, this poverty deprivation, food insecurity, it just kind of radiates all through the country. And so, uh, Assyrians everywhere in all areas, you know, the areas that we like and we don't, uh, they are all suffering, you know, and we need to, I know. I mean, I think we need to to think in those terms and think in terms of a a Syrian people that kind of you know that is hungry. Sam, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, and uh, this was really, really useful and interesting. And for those of you uh, who listened this far, if you want to learn more, you can come to the Century Foundation's website tcf.org and look for Sam's report. It's called Syrians Are Going Hungry. Will the West Act? Uh, I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I've been talking with Sam Heller, who's an independent researcher based in Beirut. Sam, thanks so much for your work on this issue, and thanks for taking the time to come talk to us about it on this podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Order from Ashes, the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. 
Till next time.